Welcome back to the 13th and final episode of season one of Hot Off the Pod. I'm your co-host, Harper Lambert. And I'm Melanie Zement. When COVID-19 reached global pandemic status last March, college campuses abruptly shut down. In doing so, students and staff lost access to not just to in-person learning, but also to valuable spaces for engaging in dialogue about the critical issues of the day. But like all things, free speech found a way to adapt to the pandemic age. And as universities prepare to reopen their doors after almost a year, there's no shortage of challenges to contend with. So to talk about the latest in free speech issues facing college campuses today, we welcome to the podcast none other than Michelle Deutschman, the executive director of the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, which also funds this very podcast. Before joining the center in 2018, Michelle served as counsel for the Anti-Defamation League and has been a lecturer at the UCLA School of Law since 2014. She's dedicated her career to studying trends in the freedom of expression on college campuses and how universities and colleges maintain that tricky balance between protecting the First Amendment and creating a safe environment for all. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a thrill and a privilege to be part of the actual series. So thanks for including me. We are so excited to get into it. You know, not including our Zoom calls, we last saw each other in person almost a million years ago now at the Center's Free Speech Conference in 2020 in Washington, D.C., right before everything shut down. It it literally feels like that was 100 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, obviously a lot has happened since then. So can you update us on what has changed in the realm of free speech and civic engagement since kind of the onset of the pandemic? Sure. I mean, I think as Harper kind of said in her introduction, things have changed, but things have also stayed the same. So despite all of the challenges and the moving online and the not being able to be in person and to assemble in order to like exercise one's free speech rights, like universities in particular, students, staff, faculty, everybody had to be really innovative and creative about how to continue not just learning, but engaging in activism and civic engagement and voter registration, all the things that we're seeing happen in person. So I think that on the one hand, there's some silver linings in terms of access in terms of more people being able to be part of discussions than maybe wouldn't have been able to if we were in person. But at the same time, I think there was, you know, some things that were missed, which is like photos of empty quads during, you know, the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And as we ran up to the presidential election. So I think everybody is excited and trepidatious about what returning means. And I think while some things might be different, I think the issues, the balancing of how we support institutional values like diversity and inclusion and equity with, you know, making sure that we safeguard the First Amendment, I don't think those have changed. In fact, I would add, when I started at the center almost three years ago, people said to me, oh, free speech on campus, like that's just, a, that's like a trend. The center going to, you know, need to be, you know, alive in a couple years. And I was like, I really believe it will. But I don't know that I would have believed how much we need a place like the center. I think we're really talking about democracy now, way beyond just higher education, but the cornerstone of how we function. And so I think the stakes in some ways are, are even higher as we come back. So in addition to new events and developments in free speech, there are a whole host of free speech related cases that have been making their way up the court system. One of those cases that has generated a lot of talk is what's being called the cheerleader case from 2017 
which finally reached the Supreme Court at the end of April. Can you just give us a brief intro into the case and we can kind of get into some of the issues that I brought up? Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people refer this as the F-chair case. So let's talk really quickly, right? We're in the world of social media where high school students and college students, right, engage outside of the classroom and outside of the schoolhouse gates. And Brandy Levy was a junior varsity cheerleader who didn't make the varsity squad. And it was a Saturday. She was out with a friend at a local store and she was mad. And so she posted the quote was F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything kind of just a moment. And I think it's one of those things where you think you're going to have that moment and it's going to disappear. But instead, it ended up that even though it only went out to like a small group of people, it ended up that it went out to the daughter of the cheer coach, who then suspended Brandy for cheer for the year. And she and her parents sued the school because she felt like this was beyond the reach of what a school's jurisdiction should do. That if they could punish her for what she wrote on social media, on her private account, outside school on a Saturday, then what privacy and what autonomy do students have at all? And NPR called this the biggest student speech case in half a century. And I think that they're referring to this 1969 case where four students were suspended for wearing these armbands to school in protest of the Vietnam War. The ruling established that students' free speech rights are protected unless the speech causes a substantial disruption to school or it qualifies as bullying. But as you said, like that case could be an incident that happened on a school campus and this one doesn't. So why exactly is a Snapchat from a random high school teenager relevant to this discussion about student free speech? I think that's such an excellent question. I think the first thing to share is that there's actually only been four Supreme Court cases since that Tinker case that you mentioned about the black armbands that the Supreme Court has heard. And so everybody is waiting because this is the big question. We're still using 1960s holdings when there was no social media, when the world was very different and then trying to apply it to this new world. So people keep getting excited. I'm going to manage expectations. I think everybody is very excited about this big ruling. I mean, based on what I've read and based on the oral arguments, I don't know that it's going to be such a big ruling. I don't know that they're really going to give great guidance to schools. You know, we'll see. I think they're going to try to really punt and do a a narrow ruling. But I think there is the possibility, right? If they were to rule in favor of the school, I think that people feel like this could really open a door to, you know, precluding high schoolers and middle schoolers' abilities to really speak for themselves. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. The last time the Supreme Court had a case like this, it was known as the Bong Hits for Jesus case. It was a student who, um, when the Olympic torch was going by, there was a school, they closed school and had an event and he unfurled this banner that said bong hits for Jesus and he got punished and it went to the Supreme Court and everyone said, this is the biggest case, student speech case in. And the court basically was like, yeah, the sign was about drugs and schools can monitor about drugs. Done. So again, we don't know what will happen. I do want to just mention though that even though this is a big speech case, I think that its impact on higher education, I think is different just because the courts treat high schoolers and students in college very differently. Doesn't mean it won't have any impact, but we'll see. Do you think in general that, you know, students are lacking from some sort of guide as to how they can use their speech because the Supreme Court is so behind in giving out guidelines? 
I think that there could be a lot more education about how to use your rights responsibly. And I don't know that we necessarily need the Supreme Court. I think the Supreme Court sort of feels like the end of the line, but the Supreme Court really is only coming in in cases where somebody is being punished, right? She lost a year of cheer. Someone gets suspended. Somebody gets expelled, right? It goes on their record. There are so many other opportunities where I think teachers, staff, friends can kind of come in and say, hey, you might have the right to say that, but like, is that the responsible thing to do? And I think there is so many opportunities that are missed, frankly, where someone can come in in a sort of either mentoring way or in a friend way to say, you know, is that what you meant? Right. And like, let's talk about it. Right. Instead of going to something super punitive. Yeah. And I think that part of the reason that this is so tricky is because it's going beyond just censorship and free speech. It's really speaking to the nature of the internet and how that complicates what can be enforced because there isn't really this boundary anymore when it comes to school, especially with the pandemic of a physical campus versus not. Like something can be ruled disruptive, like as in this case, when it didn't even occur on campus grounds. And I think that whether or not that is the deciding factor in this case, it's likely that this is going to come up again and again and again, because the internet has just totally degraded any boundary between like the real world and the virtual world. I think you're absolutely right. And as I'm sure you both know, right? I mean, this is part of huge discussions that are happening, you know, in academia, in, you know, media, in tech about how do we manage the fact that so much of our communications, so much of our interactions now are in this sort of like social media space. For what it's worth, I think it'd be really hard to argue that this was disruptive. It didn't happen on campus. I don't even know if there was any, we didn't even get, there wasn't even enough time. She was punished so quickly that I don't even know that you could argue that it was disruptive. I actually heard this really interesting interview with Brandy's dad where he was talking about how for all the other reasons, like he doesn't want kids to be censored because for him as a parent, that was a really important cue for him to know what was going on with his child. And he was like, if she hadn't posted that and I hadn't seen it, he's like, maybe I wouldn't have known what kind of place she was in. And so I think there's a lot of like issues about like legal censorship, but also an autonomy and liberty and rights, but also some of this sort of, I think sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think that goes for people's mental health, which I think is a really important issue right now. And I don't know that we want a situation where we want students going into encrypted sites to like write, you know, secret messages because they're afraid their school is going to see it and then punish them. No, I was just going to add real quick, like, interestingly, I've seen a lot of headlines that are framing this case as like mean girls or mean cheerleaders, which feels incredibly misleading to me because just to be clear, like this isn't being heard on the grounds of cyberbullying. It's really about this issue of disruption, right? It's really the the issue about like speech and whether or not the school can extend its what they call the jurisdictional arm to a store on a Saturday. And I do think that if the court were to rule in favor of the school and not give very much guidance, I think it will have a very chilling impact. And again, you are closer to high school than I am, but if I knew that I could post something and someone who would write me a recommendation for college might see it or my status in the play or on the newspaper might be in jeopardy. I'm pretty risk averse. Maybe I just wouldn't post at all. Yeah, I think that it's certainly a way that students are starting to think about social media. 
I know like Tar Harper and I were just chatting about how like we barely use Twitter because we're so terrified that maybe something that we retweet or post could be misconstrued down the line and could cost us something that we don't even know is an opportunity in our future that exists. So certainly like cancel culture definitely is playing a role in these discussions because students are getting punished automatically. And especially because there's receipts of everything, you know, all this content exists somewhere in the cloud where it's accessible and can be used against you possibly in the future. I absolutely agree. And I think if you extend that into the university setting, right, in an ideal world, universities are supposed to be places where we can try on different ideas and perspectives and where we can make mistakes and like learn. But we don't live right now in a very forgiving society. And so I think there are a lot of students and adults who feel like you feel that, you know, they would rather not say rather than risk something being misconstrued. And I think that's problematic on a societal level, but I think it's especially problematic, like in the university setting, because how do you learn if everybody's afraid to speak? Totally. And we bump up against this a ton in the newspaper, especially with the opinion section, because we want to foster conversations and we want to promote everyone sharing their ideas. But how can we do that while ensuring that we're being respectful and caring of one another? It's definitely a tough balance and a conversation that I'm sure will continue for a long time. I think a lot of schools are having those conversations. I just did a really interesting training at uh, Cal State School with a lot of their folks who monitor their social media sites for the school. And the question was, when we put up, you know, an ad for a program, let's say about dreamers, and somebody writes something political, but not very supportive or nice, can we take it down? And if we can't take it down, then what do we do? Again, it was this idea of like, trying to explain to people, you know, the First Amendment doesn't leave you a lot of leeway. You're either going to have to take all the comments or you're going to have to really take probably none of the comments and neither is a perfect option. With the cheerleader case, do you know when we can expect a ruling on it? If I had to guess, I would, I would say they usually leave the more controversial ones till the end. So I would say like last week of June and then they're like, we're out of here. Yeah. Well, we'll have to check back in and see what happens. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think that what you were just talking about with this sort of problem that keeps cropping up of how do you foster environments that allow for learning and for making mistakes and all that while protecting students and creating a safe environment. I think that really segues nicely into the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is a number of free speech clashes when it comes to race and the teaching of critical race theory. So what are some of the recent trends you've witnessed in these areas? This is not a new, new issue, but I think the newest iteration has really been following, you know, George Floyd's murder and this like summer of incredible activism, you know, the largest civil rights movement since the 1960s. So I'm going to take us back a step back to the previous administration. There was an executive order that was passed last September. It's hard to believe that that was like only a half a year ago or a little more. Trump issued an executive order that basically banned any federal contractors from conducting racial sensitivity training. And they wanted to, quote, stop efforts to indoctrinate government employees with divisive and harmful sex and race based ideologies, unquote. And then, of course, this applied to recipients of government funds like universities. I think they were trying to impact specific things, for instance, diversity, equity and inclusion trainings critical race theory, you know, even certain books that are used, for instance, like Howard Zinn's 
a people's history of the United States. So what happened is that, again, the same chilling that may happen as a result of the Supreme Court's ruling in the Cheer case, we have a lot of schools that halted their diversity programming because they were afraid that if they were in fact found in violation of the order, they would lose money. And especially in the world of the pandemic, like who can afford to lose money right now? And it clearly chilled speech. I think it was clearly unconstitutional. You know, and then there was some strategic discussions about like, do we, do, does it get challenged? Does it not get challenged? Do we hopefully just wait it out? And ultimately, of course, what happened is that Trump, you know, was removed, you know, he was removed from office and Biden came in and on like his second day, he rescinded that executive order, which is great news, except that people will still really upset and convinced that this indoctrination, you know, this sort of like woke, you know, police was happening. And so state legislatures sort of took up the mantle. So that's sort of been, you know, really since Biden's inauguration, what's happened is that we've seen bills like the executive order in Arkansas, Iowa, Idaho, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, West Virginia. And they're not just getting introduced. They're being passed by both houses. They're being signed into law. Like, you know, last month, the governor of Idaho signed this bill that basically bars public schools from basically teaching critical race theory. And this is so problematic in so many ways, certainly from a legal perspective, I think it's problematic. I think it's clearly viewpoint-based, which is unconstitutional, but even more than the legality of it, it really can undermine education and the attempts to remedy like longstanding practices and systematic racism. Obviously, Biden came in day two, like you said, and took down this executive order, essentially. How removable are these laws that are going into effect at the state level? Are these going to be able to be dismantled easily? Or are they something that's going to stick around a little longer? I just don't know. I mean, I think, you know, is it possible that something could get on the books and then get removed? Sure. Is it possible something could get on the books and stay there but not be enforced? Right? Because I think that like policymaking, I always say that like, it's one thing to have a law and it's another thing to like have a law that you actually enforce. And then if you're actually going to enforce it, are you going to enforce it consistently? Right. And then I think there's also the question, Melanie, of like, is someone going to sue? Right. So if the law gets enforced and somebody says, hey, university of blank, you're losing money and that university sues. Right. Could there potentially be a ruling that dismantles the law? Yes. I think another offshoot of this recent crop of legislation is, you know, this, this ban or attempted ban on teaching the 1619 project, which is the New York Times's project that really kind of goes into the legacy of slavery in this country and the contributions of Black Americans. And I just wanted to quote really quickly that the Arkansas and Mississippi bills call it a racially divisive and revisionist account, which is kind of ironic because yes, it is purposely a revisionist account of, I think, the really lackluster American history that we've received in our public educations across this country. Um, and it is also, you know, how can it be racially divisive when it's history, like it happened? So I think that we get into this sort of question of viewpoints versus fact and like, what is fact? Are people taking advantage of the way that the former administration came up with this idea of alternative facts and bending the idea of truth. 
I mean, I think that is the topic for an entire separate podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What are facts? What is truth? But I want to just piggyback on what you're saying to add that like it completely and totally also intersects with academic freedom and the autonomy of the university. Not only is it just the 1619 project, but now it's carried over to kind of the creator and founder of the project being denied tenure at her university. Even though Nicole Hannah-Jones was recommended for tenure at UNC by her department and by the chancellor, the board of trustees somehow said, this is not going to work out, right? And now people are saying, wait, do we have a political litmus test for tenure? Do we have a political litmus test for what students read or think about in the classroom? I mean, academic freedom, like at its core, the court has said it's up to the university to decide who can study, who teaches, what they teach, and how they teach. And so I think that, again, it's about these major issues about racism and systematic racism in our country. But I think they're all, it's also a lot about power and control and who's going to control the narrative and who's going to decide what people can learn and can't learn. And I find it to be very terrifying to thinking about state lawmakers making those decisions as opposed to people within the university. And we've talked a lot about how public universities are being the target of this because there is that kind of oversight with funding being provided by the state. Do you think these conversations are also taking place at private universities where, you know, obviously they have a little bit more autonomy over things? I do. You know, I think that's a really great point, Melanie, that, you know, the first time it doesn't apply to private universities. But the truth is most private universities function as if the First Amendment applies. Because in order to sort of live up to your institutional values of like robust debate and curiosity and inquiry, you really have to be able to support all kinds of viewpoints. So I think colleges across the country, private and public, are having these same discussions about cancel culture, about self-censorship, about all of these kinds of concerns about whose voice gets to be heard, who has a platform, who has a microphone, who decides who gets to use that platform and microphone and how they use it. I think these are really quintessential questions that not only greater society, but the academy really has to deal with. I sometimes think to myself, I can't imagine being in school thinking that at any moment someone could record what I say in class and post it somewhere. It's just not something that I had to think about when I was a dinosaur and went to college and there was no internet. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think another issue that has come up lately a lot is this use of direct quotation of the N-word in court cases and in college classes. And, you know, really what it's shown a spotlight on is that there aren't clear guidelines for this. Um, There aren't clear policies by individual universities or really by any larger body. And I think that, yeah, that creates this conflict where it's like hate speech, but then also censorship of historical materials. Like, how does that all work out? I guess one broader point I just want to make going back to your original question about how things have changed. I think one of the things that's changed is when I started this job three years ago, so much of the focus was about outsiders coming onto campus with really hateful and extreme messages, right? Whether it was like Ann Coulter or Milo, right? And I feel like now a lot of more of what I feel like I see is it's actually people within the university debating with one another about what kinds of words, what kinds of readings, what kinds of thinkers are sort of appropriate. And I think the use or not use of the N-word is one of those examples where 
there's been a specific focus as of late, in particular in law schools, and this question of whether or not law professors and students should be, should, period, or should be able to actually read or say certain slurs, including the N-word. And there really is a division of opinion. You know, I don't want to get too nerdy, but Eugene Volokh at UCLA and Randall Kennedy, who I believe is at Harvard, just wrote a big piece about how they think that especially in training young lawyers, you have to follow what they call the use mention distinction. You never can use it like to hurl at someone, but to mention it, they really believe not from a First Amendment perspective, but from a pedagogical perspective, you need to be able to mention it because what is, you know, litigation in court? It's like what's in the documents. They think that the jury needs to be able to see and hear these words. And there's, you know, other people who feel like there really should be basically there's no reason to ever have to traumatize, you know, someone by using the words. And the question really becomes bigger than the word. It's like, is it a trauma to continue to use it? Or is it sanitizing history not to use it? And then I think you asked, well, so should, you know, there's no guidelines. But then of course the question with guidelines is, well, who should write the guidelines? While I feel like it's a very tough question, I, you know, the free speech advocate in me starts to worry about censorship. And I think, yeah, the N-word is an easy one, right? I think most people are going to agree it's horrible. But then what about lots of other groups who have other words that aren't just slurs, but, and then where, where do we stop and who gets to decide, right? And I feel like I don't know that I would want the government to be in a position of deciding who says things and what things they're allowed to say. You've just been in college classes and like, you know, I don't know how often trigger warnings are used. I don't know how people handle other words, whether it's, you know, I don't know what happens and yeah. what you guys think. Like, would you want there to be guidelines that say, like, here's 25 words that we can't say? Yeah, interesting. I think when it comes to trigger warnings, there's been so much interesting variation in my time in college. And I've always thought that, you know, I think this is really going to change after I leave because I think that's been a source of a lot of conflict where I have some professors who will say, look, like, I generally don't believe in trigger warnings. I won't use them because I think anything can be a trigger to anyone. That's obviously a very blanket statement argument because there are some words that clearly are more likely to bring up trauma for people than others. And then I've also been in classes where professors will say, look, if you have a lot of triggers, don't take this class. And that is also like quite a stance to take. That feels like you're almost excluding a whole group of students. And is that really fair that they can't consume the class? I think trigger warnings can work. I think for me, the question is, I would want them to be voluntary. So each professor gets to decide when and if they use the trigger warnings. Again, I start to get more concerned when the university says, everybody has to like issue a trigger warning. This is what the trigger warning has to be about. It's only going to be about these right four issues. I found too that, I mean, as an English and comm major, I've experienced a ton more trigger warnings in English classes because I feel like the content really deals with things that are considered more triggering much more often. And so professors might be more used to conversing with students closely about issues that are a little bit more sensitive versus I think in calm classes, it's much more analytical the way we approach topics, much more about data and so less focused on what do you think about this issue. And so I think that it lends itself less towards trigger warnings for students. 
I was just going to say, because like I'm an English major too. So I definitely share that perspective. I'm also a film major and I almost feel like it needs to be mandatory when screenings are involved because I have been in classes where like, look, we'll be watching something and then there will out of nowhere be like a graphic rape scene. And I do feel like that is something that people should be warned about before. And I, you know, I've had professors who are like, well, you know, you could be triggered by an image of a tree, but like, that's not in the same category. In order to warn someone about some content, does it have to be that it might trigger someone? Like I am lucky, I am not a victim of sexual assault, but I would like to know if I'm going to see graphic sexual assault scenes. Like I just want to know because they're upsetting for me and I want to do what I feel like I need to do to emotionally prepare myself. And I don't know what the downside is of giving people that opportunity. I think that's what I don't understand. I'm not seeing any really convincing arguments for the the opposite. Right, but going back to the N-word argument, that isn't about a trigger warning. That's about whether or not you can actually say the word or even since you're both in English, one of the articles I read was like, what about reading the word? Like you're not saying Mm -hmm. it, but should it be written out in the text? I mean, everybody always goes to Huckleberry Finn right? It's like, one, should we be reading that? Two, if we read it, should we say the word? And three, should the word even be written out in the text? It's interesting too, because like, even if you're not saying the word out loud, you're still invoking all the feelings and culture and and history that comes up with that word if you're looking at it on a page. But also again, back to the big question that goes along with all of this, like, is this censorship okay? And where's the line and who draws the line and all those issues that we've been talking about. Yeah, it's definitely one to grapple with. For sure. I mean, and I I get to raise all the questions. I wish I had all the answers. I think the most important thing is like what you both have been doing with your podcast, which is like, these are issues that we can't figure out in 250 characters. We need to like dig deep and like really be thoughtful and intentional and like give time. And I think that's also one of the things I feel like I sound so old when I say this, but I just feel like social media doesn't allow us to really be nuanced. And I think so many of these issues really involve people getting around a table and talking about all of these things, which you can't really do if you're just trying to write a pithy, snarky thing to get more followers. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these issues have been raised in the last year. And I wonder whether people haven't been given the opportunity to process and talk with one another in the same way that we have in previous issues in previous years, because we're not in person with one another. And there's something about that connection to sitting across a table from someone. I mean, I think that we've had great meetings with all the voice awardees and fellows over the last year over Zoom, but nothing quite reached the level that we were able to have in our conversations with one another in DC when we were all together. And, you know, it's definitely something to note. I absolutely agree. And I think, like I said, there's a lot of great opportunities that have come out of, not a lot, there's interesting opportunities (laughs) that have come out of COVID in terms of how we can reach people. But I sometimes worry, are we going to go too far the other way of it's like, right, who wants to go back to the office like nine to six, like five days a week? I get that. But what do we lose by not coming together and engaging in person. Because I think there's a lot of businesses and the university too are thinking about, well, okay, this worked for a year. So maybe we don't need to pay so much travel for people to like, you know, all the UC exes, newspaper editors, voice grantees to meet up because we did fine. And so I'm very into personal connections and I like the phone and I like meeting with people for coffee. So I do worry a little that that might get lost. Yeah. And just for the record, like we're not fine. This has not been that great. (laughs) 
it's been a hard time. I didn't mean like everyone is fine, but I think there's this moment where it's like, well, it worked. And now we could Mm -hmm. save a lot of money because maybe we don't really need to do all of our classes in person. I I don't know what the talk at UCSB has been. I know that they're just exploring a lot of different ideas. Totally. And I think like kind of not super free speech, but also just like autonomy over decisions is going to be the big debate over whether universities are going to require students to get vaccines to come back in person. Certainly that is something that UCSB is talking about. And I think that, you know, it goes again, like who who gets to make these decisions? I think just briefly, while we have a few more minutes, the last thing that we wanted to touch on was something that actually happened a couple of days ago. So last Wednesday, the Associated Press fired a 22-year-old reporter named Emily Wilder for allegedly violating their social media policy during her time with the company. And what that refers to is when she was in college, she was a prominent member of pro-Palestinian organizations, and she frequently expressed her views on social media. But in light of the last few weeks and the conflict reaching a boiling point in the Middle East, basically conservative groups have been recirculating the tweets, and that led to her dismissal. So I think that this just brings up a lot of important questions that kind of circle around college free speech, but also move a little bit beyond it. One of them being like, will college students need to expect to be punished for their activism during their time in school by future employers? I think this is, again, a very key inquiry that we have to make, which is how do we leave room to grow and change if our past follows us everywhere? And I think it's like a really hard question. And I, you know, I think this has come up in a lot of different situations. It came up in this case with AP. It's come up with high school students having college, you know, admissions being revoked because of things they've said or done. You know, I think it's an easier case when someone is saying something that most people will agree is like really vile and horrible, but it gets harder when it has to do with political issues, when it has to do with like social issues and like how far back do we look? And I think this, this goes back to all of these questions when there was this like rash of like photos of politicians, like in blackface, like horrible, like, of course they should know better. But I think it's, it's a really large societal question about, you know, how careful do you need to be? And if you have to be that careful, then how do you affect change? And how do you be your authentic self? both in like your activism and also just in your learning. I mean, I feel like there were a lot of things that I believed when I was in college that I I don't feel the same way about now. And I certainly wouldn't want things that I said and did to be brought up, you know, now as a like, you know, 40 something year old adult. And I don't feel like I'm helping with the solution, but I think it's something that we need to be very careful about because I think in some cases it's easy when it's not you, but then when it's your newspaper or your friend or your class or your college, right? Um, It's different. Sure. And I mean, clearly there are some differences here. We're talking about like newspaper, you know, a corporation versus a publicly owned university. But I think it still kind of, to me, falls within the same arena because journalism is supposed to safeguard public interest. Like that's the idea that it's supposed to inform people and to provide a public service. So I think when it comes to this question of like, when do political opinions turn into what is considered hate speech, who's allowed to make those decisions? Like, I know technically the answer is whoever owns the paper, 
But I mean, clearly with the whole public opinion on social media, it feels like everyone can weigh in. I think it's sort of similar to the question you asked earlier about public versus private schools. So like, do private schools have to abide by the First Amendment? No, but are they having that discussion? So right, the First Amendment might not apply to AP, but this is, like you said, journalism. And like, what is freedom of the press? What are those values, whether you're a public or private entity? And again, I think this is a huge question. This goes back to truth and facts and journalism and coverage. And, you know, Harper, I think you're going to go out and like solve all these problems. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think too, we've been bashing a lot on social media, but Harper kind of pointed out a, a, a distinct advantage, which is that, you know, Yes, it's a private institution, but also now we're all on social media holding it accountable to its actions because, you know, there's a platform for people to talk about these things. No, you're right. And I feel like I don't mean to seem too hard on social media because the truth is we're (laughs) we're in sort of a a phase where there's just a lot of negative. But I mean, you take a step back and realize like you think about the Arab Spring, you think about all kinds of like activism and movements that really couldn't have taken place without social media. And I think it's just one of those things that's really hard because you kind of want all the good without the bad. That's not possible. And so I think like as a society, as a community, as a campus, we're all trying to weigh it and figure it out in terms of like, how do we have, you know, the access and the momentum for change weighed against sort of the harassment and the extremism and some of the ugliness. I love to bash on the social media on here, but like, look at my screen time and it'll give me away and and show that I do spend a significant amount of my day, you know, on these platforms. I hate when that thing comes up every week that says like, do you want to look at your phone use time? And I'm like, no, "No, I really don't. I don't. And, you know, I think that this reminds me of something we were talking about earlier with the internet and like, what even is public domain anymore? But I think, and this is a subject for a whole other podcast, but to me, it really highlights that social media can't just be viewed anymore as a private couple platforms. Like, no, the impact, the influence is way too great. Like we're beyond that. So there's going to be a lot of clashes I know for as long as social media exists about how public entities can, you know, regulate or not regulate all of that. So that seems to be the evergreen question. I mean, I think it is an evergreen question. There are some people, and I think more and more people who are arguing that maybe social media platforms are like the public square. If the public square is where I can take a soapbox and stand on it and kind of say whatever I want, how different is that? And if that's the case, I think there are some people who think the First Amendment should apply because it is the equivalent of a public square. I mean, some of the best you know, legal minds are debating this right at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what they decide. <laughs> yeah, you can bring me back, you know, in a couple of years. Uh-huh. And we'll talk about how it's all changed. And then you both will be these. Or like, how it hasn't. <laughs> right. One of those two things. You both will be star journalists and maybe I'll be interviewing you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a lot of pressure. We'll see. Oh, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great time just chatting about all these issues. We'll see, I guess, with all of this in the future. Yeah. And what a great way to end our first season two, full circle, taking it back to the center where we started. Can I end just by thanking both of you, saying I'm so impressed with the work you've done. And then also, if it's okay, just to say to the listeners that, you know, we're talking about some really big, heady issues, just to remind people that we all have a voice 
and that we may not all have a platform or a podcast or a magazine, but we do, I think, have a responsibility to use our voice in making the world that we want it to be like. And I just encourage people to to remember that you can do that in a day-to-day small way as well. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. Here are some other hot headlines from the Daily Nexus. An Associated Students bill requiring all events hosted by the organization to only serve vegetarian food has received criticism for being culturally insensitive and an overreach of Associated Students' authority. The bill has been shelved until fall quarter 2021. At this year's extravaganza concert hosted on Sunday, May 16th by AS Program Board, R&B songstress Nikki and Floridian indie rap star Dominic Fike took the stage and participated in a Q&A with students. The Daily Nexus marks the seventh anniversary of the 2014 Isla Vista shooting by looking into how the event spurred safety and self-governance in IV. Read the story at dailynexus.com. Special thanks to our guest, Michelle Deutschman, and to the rest of the Hot Off the Pod team, Emily Kosis, Josh and Manti, and Tony Schindler-Ruberg. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on season two of Hot Off the Pod. And before we go, a quick personal message from me. When I graduate in a few weeks, I'll be passing on the host baton to our lovely producer, Emily Kosis. And I just wanted to thank the center for giving us the independence and the support to create a project that Melanie and I care so much about. Thank you to Mel, my amazing partner in all of this. And thank you to anybody who's listened so far. I can't wait to watch our passion project grow and to reach more of you in the future. See you later.